This episode is brought to you by my wonderful patrons. I'd like to give special shout outs to my top tier patrons, David from Portland, Tom from Pancake Analytics, the Snorlaxian, Connor from Rock Pokemon, Mike, Night Knight, Hogan, Big No Face, and Matt from Ferraratron. I also can't forget today's episode was executive produced by Leo. Thank you so much for believing in me and backing the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support these episodes, become a patron. I have two tiers at $3 and $5 a month. Joining the first tier gives you exclusive access to patron posts and a vintage card from my collection signed by me. The $5 tier gives you access to everything you get in the $3 tier, along with also having access to our Discord community. It gives you the opportunity to talk to other collectors, discuss market performance and news, show off your mail days, and of course, ask questions. Whether you join or not though, I still appreciate you listening. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Geeked Out Collecting Podcast, where we apply financial and investing principles to our favorite hobby collectibles like Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, Fortnite, comic books, you name it, we talk about it all. My name is Jess, and I'm your host, and I am so excited to introduce my new guest for today, David Person. He was such a pleasure to have on because he's such a wealth of knowledge, not just from a Pokemon collecting perspective, like just sheerly the Pokemon card but also from an investing perspective as well because that's kind of what he does in his normal everyday life and that's helped him over the years. So it was really nice to have him on because of those, because of his background and knowledge, but also because of how he collects and what kind of collector he is. I think him and I collect obviously very differently from a lot of perspectives. The first one that I can think of is that he doesn't get his cards graded. I love graded cards. That's my thing. That's what I love to do. And there's nothing wrong with us collecting differently, but it's nice to get a different perspective on, you know, something that I talk about normally and that I love. So it, it, it's really great to to be able to see the other side of the fence, I guess you could say. For collectors who don't like to grade their cards, what do they do? How do they maintain their cards? Why do they do that? Um, there's a lot of really cool things that we kind of talk about. And I really appreciated having his perspective on because it was a little bit of a different flavor. But I think at the end of the day though, just because we're collecting differently doesn't mean that we don't still follow similar or same fundamentals, which I think is obviously the thing that we all want to take away from this is what are the fundamentals across the board that if you're looking at collecting purely from an investment perspective, you know, what are those fundamentals that we can take away to apply with how we collect? Because at the end of the day, everyone collects differently for the most part. Everyone is going to collect things in a certain kind of way, something that works for them, right? Because it's really personal and, and it would be completely and entirely rude and out of line, you know, for me to, for example, say to David, oh, well, you know, you're a terrible collector because you collect like this. And it's like, well, what the hell? <laughs> Anyone can collect how they want to collect. There's no geek gatekeepers here. So, but anyways, it was a really great conversation to have. And I think, again, if your goal is to, for example, turn your collection into a nest egg, I think he talks about a lot of those fundamentals here so that, again, regardless of how you collect, you can still apply these fundamentals to, uh, potentially apply these fundamentals to how you are as a collector. So anyways, I'm so excited. You guys are gonna love this, obviously. So thank you so much, David, for being on and let's get started. So happy 
happy that you're here with us. Um, to kind of get the stream going, what I wanted to do is, um, hey everyone, hey, how's it going? Um, so everyone, I have on David Person, who is an amazing collector. You have like, it, it's it's a little mind blowing. So what I'm gonna do is, you know, I want um, people to get to know you a little bit more if they haven't heard you already. Um, so if you don't mind introducing yourself and then letting us know a little bit more about you and uh, your collection. Okay, that sounds good. I, I can do that. Um, you're frozen. Do I care? Do I? I do care, but I mean, <laughs> I only have a picture of you frozen. Is that <laughs> it happens sometimes. I apologize if it's a really silly face. Um, I just kind of reset the video on my end, but yeah. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll roll from there then. So, uh, so yeah, my name is David Person. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of quietly been a secret out here for many, many years, uh, while a lot of folks have sort of flourished in the social media uh, world as it were these days. And, um, and I'm proud of them because I think that what's so fantastic about that is it's brought uh, great um, recognition to the hobby. And I'm sure it's been a big uh, contributor to the fact that Pokemon is now the number one media franchise of all media franchises in the world. So, so you know, they sort of lay the groundwork. And, and I decided about a year and a half or so ago with the, I guess it'd be a year ago now with the pandemic to use some of that um, that opportunity to kind of get myself more out there for a variety of different reasons, none of which I knew at the time. Um, <laughs> just take a chance, try something. Uh, and people had really been asking me for years to share my collection. And so that's kind of what started it and where it will end up, I do not know. It's definitely a work in progress. As folks have gotten to know me a little bit, they, they know that I'm more of a reclusive type of person. So the limelight is not very comfortable at times. And so with that, um, I'm trying to navigate my way around how I want to do this and, and focused on some very specific goals that are becoming more important to me rather than just being followers and subscribers and the rest of it. And underlying all of that, who am I and what do I do? So I, I have the largest uh, English uh, language Pokemon card collection in the world. And, that, uh, and I define that by comprehensiveness. So meaning... If you could list out a spreadsheet of every single English language card issued, what would that look like? And let's say there's 30,000 cards or whatever it is, and how many of them do I have and how many of them am I missing? And those kinds of assessments or statistics would end up determining who has the most comprehensive collection. Uh, there are a handful of people who have amazing, amazing, there's people that have, there's thousands of people that have amazing collections, especially the way that they measure them. But in the English language world, I think that what sets mine apart is, is not only do I have pretty much everything, but I've also got every trophy card that's been issued since 2004, when the first trophy cards were given out at world's competitions, all the way through 2019, the last first, second, third or fourth places if they exist, and all of the finalists and champion cards, those as well. Um, uh, so every card that's ever been issued with respect to that too. And then, of course, every promo and every variant and and every so all my sets are true master sets with not just um, not just the reverse hollows, hollows, secret rares, rares, etc. But then every other card that could be obtained in a theme deck or in a collection box, mm -hmm. anything where you altered the art. So so, yeah, the um, the ADHD nature of me or, or anal part of me and wanting to be you know holistic has continue to drive me. And that's kind of what's been going on for all of this, uh, all of these years. Wow. That's incredible. And 
and I know you've been in the community or I guess in social media for about a year or so, but you've been collecting for a a tremendous amount of time prior to that. What year did you technically start uh, collecting your first sets? Yeah, technically it'd be 2004. So yeah, so I I tell the story, you know, that some people, probably a lot of people have heard by now, but you know, being that that little bit of a shopaholic gene that's in there and every wants to rear its ugly head every once in a while. So so it was late at night and I was just on eBay and I had no idea why. Dangerous combination. Dangerous combination. <laughs> exactly. Many an infomercial was built on uh, on that dangerous combination. <laughs> so um, I bought two sets. I bought two master sets from a, a set builder and I woke up and it was like, cost me about $700, $750, something like that at that time for the two sets. And I woke up the next morning and I was completely perturbed with myself. I was guilt ridden. And I thought, what are you doing? You haven't done Pokemon since 1999 or 2000. You don't have anything. Now you have two sets. What do we do at this point? Mm-hmm. And that's when I begin to, to, as I felt guilty, say, well, let's see what else is out there. Let's try to understand how many other sets are out there. How long has this thing been going on? What else would I need? And I fortunately got immersed. Um, I started to realize, well, you have 18 more sets you need that you don't have any access to at this point. So I would go to eBay and I would find someone selling them. And I'd say, okay, that's one set. Do you have any others you're selling? And they ended up buying two or three full collections by collectors that were not interested any longer in the hobby. They wanted to get out about that time because they wanted to do other things. And one of those collections was, I was very tremendously fortunate to end up purchasing some of the most, it was a a very original collector who had put everything together, including promos, variants, the the VS Tropical Mega Battle um, set was part of it. There were, you know, um, the sample cards, there were the, uh, I have the the WB movie promos without the stamps on them that I'm only aware of a couple sets. So there were just things that sort of got me to thinking, you've got sort of a unique collection now. How do we keep it going? And that drove me from there. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, okay. So yeah, your collection is vast and tremendous. And I'm sure you have a whole breadth of knowledge on all the tiny nook and crannies, which is always the thing that really interested me um, with you know, the Pokemon cards, because there's a lot of little subsectors that you can get into, like with what you've been collecting, the world champion trophy cards, which, which I, I can't lie, I don't know very much about them. Uh, So I'm not going to talk like I can actually speak on them. But those are really interesting little subsectors to me, even even especially too with the Japanese cards, there's a lot of little subsectors in them. And that's just the thing that's made Pokemon so interesting is, you know, you've gotten your one master set. If you're a completionist, you've gotten your one master set from the set that you grew up on or that you first got introduced on. And then, you know, with Pokemon and how vast it is, it's so easy to just start, um, I guess, just down that rabbit hole of where can I find really interesting niche sets. And since you've been collecting so long, you know, when you were on eBay late at night back in the day, you know, in 2004 and 2005, just around that time, how easy or often were you seeing listings for Pokemon um, at that time? Were there were, Was there a lot of action going on in the market? Yeah, there was a lot of action going on in the market. So it's just that back at that time, you didn't have to, 
Well, I'm not going to say you have to pay a lot for it. Certainly, you didn't have to pay anywhere near what it's going on today. Obviously, the popularity was pretty much at its at its lowest. And mm-hmm. that's why you saw so many people saying, I'm not interested anymore. I don't think this is going to go anywhere. And that's unfortunate because I, I think that maybe a lot of collectors over the course of time sort of turn from that collection mentality into an investment mentality. Mm. And, and, and I think you start to measure it. Like when looking back, I'm sure if those folks had said, hey, we're collectors at heart and we love this hobby and we're going to continue along as collectors they wouldn't have necessarily been rewarded if we didn't go through a surge in in this day and age, but they would have enjoyed and still had their collections. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so, you know, I, I don't, again, I'm so not judgmental. I think everybody has to do what's right for them. But for me, I never got into Pokemon to have anything to do with the values of the cards. I got into it because I'd come off sports cards. I'd come off counterfeiting. I'd come off, uh, um, uh, burglarizing. I, you know, again, people have heard I was, you know, uh, money laundering, burglaries that were happening when people were, and it's heyday. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was, I had my own shop and I was, you know, held up and, and people cutting through the drywall of my warehouses to, to finagle like a worm that I would not know that my cases were empty when I went there one day. So mm-hmm. there was so much, and steroids, there was everything that was wrong. And I had been a collector since I was a small child. And so I love the innocence of Pokemon. That's what really appealed to me, um, you know, if my kids ever tell me there's not a tooth fairy, there's not a Santa Claus or whatever, they're banned permanently from all family affairs forever. So, um, <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm going to continue to believe in all those things uh, because that's what the life to me is, is great that you can still maintain an innocence and this hobby allows us to do that. Now, obviously it's getting a little tougher with tampering and things like that, but, mm-hmm. but, but I haven't seen Pikachu or Psyduck on steroids yet. So they'll be okay going forward. (laughs) You know, that's funny that you say that because, and you had mentioned this as well earlier, Pokemon is the number one media franchise in the world right now, beating out everybody, like, which, you know, is surprising and then not at the same time. Um, But what's interesting too, to kind of tie that in also with, you know, Pikachu is never going to be on steroids. Um, I've had a previous uh, guest on my podcast. His name is Charlie and he's been a collector for 20 plus years. So he's seen the market, you know, all the ups and all the downs and he's a true collector. He hasn't necessarily liquidated, which is, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I don't judge people on their decisions and why they collect uh, for those reasons. But anyways, one of the things that he said, he says, in some ways it is almost safer in some ways, it's almost safer to collect Pokemon cards as an investment because Pikachu will never come out and say anything completely abhorrent or will never necessarily have political leanings or anything like that. So someone like a CEO of a company that could come out and and, and have a scandal, that's not going to happen with Pikachu or Charizard, which I thought, you know, was, was a really interesting thought. I, I never really uh, pictured it that way, but it seems like over the years, Pokemon and Nintendo have been doing a tremendous job to maintain the hobby. Um, I don't know that they necessarily even think about the secondary market, but nothing has really seemed to ultimately, you know, hurt the bottom line value of the cards, at least for the vintage ones from what we've been seeing. Um, cause, cause I'm guessing, you know, at the time those collectors, when they were starting to liquidate and when you were starting to buy up, you know, they probably expected to see higher returns at that point in time. And I think that was around the time too, when, when, when Watsy stopped 
printing cards. So I, I don't even remember. I, I think I might have been in high school at that time. I can't remember. I think I was out of Pokemon at that point. Um, and, and so I don't even remember how folks felt about those early sets, like the EX sets, um, I think. That was 2003 and 2004, I believe. That same time. The e-readers. Yeah, yeah I, I don't even know how consumers were, you know, what their thoughts were on those sets previously, um, which is kind of really interesting to think about on how, you know, all the different generations that Pokemon has been touching and then how each one kind of reacts to it and then how they... Um, like, I guess, experience their nostalgia with it, because I've been having conversations with um, collectors who do see the cards as investments. Um, they've been looking at the e-reader cards, the Aquapolis, the Sky Ridge, the EX cards, because they think that might be the next round of, you know, just nostalgia when those children who experienced those cards when they were young, they're going to start coming to an age where they have potentially liquid, they're potentially liquid and potentially buying up those sets to, you know, to get their masters. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that specifically, if that's something that you uh, maybe agree with or not, but I'm just curious to see what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know who Charlie is, and I understand his opinions. And of course, most people, it's a pretty tight knit community. So, so I don't disagree. I, I tend not to, um, to, to ascribe to the idea of necessarily something's better than something else. So okay, Pokemon's the better investment than maybe sports cards or something else or a great investment because of this. Um, but I don't disagree necessarily. Uh, I just don't necessarily make the point. And mm -hmm. I say that is because um, they are, I call it death versus life. So being alive versus being dead. So in the world, people die. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, if you were to look at collectibles going back for, you know, my typical viewer is a 28 year old male. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm not sure how that pertains to our conversation, but, but honestly, if you went to, you know, my wife collected Lucille Ball, who was a comedian. Um, I love her. So like, great. Yeah, and I mean, mm -hmm. just one of the most famous uh, actresses, comedians, comedians of, of ever, of all time. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the value of the dolls and China and porcelain and all the rest of it that we have, it's really virtually nothing at this point. And one of the problems is that Lucille Ball died. And so mm. once Lucille Ball dies, and even though she was dying, it was nostalgia based in the original things, eventually she fades from memory. And the oh. newer generation doesn't necessarily, you know, embrace her the same way. Now mm -hmm. contrast that with Betty Boop. So Betty Boop, who I know nothing about other than I've seen her growing up and she was comic strips and that kind of thing. She was not a real person. And yet you can still find Betty Boop stuff, sort of like Hello Kitty stuff or whatever that's out there being sold as collectibles. So that's to me the difference in Pokemon. Pokemon, uh, someone can, can love it because it was when they were a kid. Someone can love it because they love Pikachu, but then their son or daughter can love Pikachu. And mm -hmm. then above and beyond, it carries from generation to generation all the way through. And what an amazing thing to be able to say that there's no dying in all of this, unless I suppose there's a battle gone wrong. Um, but I don't know much about that. So, <laughs> you know, so those, those are tremendous advantages from a continuity standpoint, as long as there's enough demand for um, Pokemon and Nintendo to keep doing what they're doing. But nobody dies and nobody, when I think of baseball players that were so great at the time, that generation's gone. Many of the new kids don't know who those players are. They look at the latest, um, you know, star set coming through. 
and it's different and it changes the demand for the old stuff. Eventually when people know Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle and those names, I just don't know how much demand they're gonna carry over the course of all time when parents pass, if their kids aren't really as much as into it as, uh, as their you know, parents were. That'll be that'll be really interesting um, to see what ultimately happens to the market because I agree it could go one way where the, the value holds or it can go the other way where the generations just kind of uh, the interest from later generations kind of die off and and one of the things that I try to do is I try to look at other hobby sectors especially one like baseball because it's been around for so long there are a lot of things that you that Pokemon who is a younger you know collectible can learn from that market you know what what are some things that what are some patterns that we saw in baseball that we might see in, P- in in Pokemon and in Pikachu with the Charizards and stuff like that. And the one thing that I do makes me feel hopeful on is, you know, the Honus Wagner card that is still tremendous, like an incredibly valued card because uh, i mean it was part of the very first set that was printed i mean i'm i'm preaching to the choir you already know all these things but you know for my listeners uh you know the honus wagner card is an incredibly valuable card so i i wonder if pokemon has a shot and i think they do and i think uh you know uh pokemon and nintendo have been doing a good job i think of managing the brand but we'll see how they continue to adapt with the world and how it's changing because you know with the with the pandemic and how everything's been happening and and then trying to adapt to it i'm sure a lot of their plans for the 25th uh you know anniversary kind of you know didn't hit as well as they wanted to just because of how everything is and i know too in japan um even with the olympics coming up i think um they potentially are running still running into issues just because of a recent outbreak that's been kind of happening out there so um but but yeah anyways it will be really interesting to see how they manage the brand in the next 10 20 years because i'm sure those these next few decades are going to be really critical to see you know, as parents, um, um, like how strongly parents introduce like Pokemon to their children and then how, how much of it do they actually squeeze out? Cause I know some parents want their kids to get into something and you know, they don't, and, or maybe later on they, they end up doing that if, if they didn't like it at first, but that'll be really interesting to, um, see unfold. But I, you know, I'm just kind of curious from, from, um, you know, because you have been, um, a completionist collector, right? Uh, you, you're, I mean, your collection is insane in, in all of the positive ways. Um, you know, your collection is like, like candy, like you, it's just so awesome to look at. Um, what made you stick with English cards versus also getting into the Sp- uh, Spanish, listen to me, the uh, Japanese cards in that market? Yeah, I think it was, it was, it became overwhelming very early. It, you know, when you start to understand what's really out there and available. And even back in the day, when I look at the very first purchases I made of trophy cards or champion, you know, or finalist stamp cards, before I knew there was another better card out there, I had to learn everything the hard way, overpay for everything. Um, I was spending, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of dollars. And, and still having, and then you wake up and there's four more sets issued over the next 12 months. And then you're still trying to go back and pick up cards you don't have and variants and all the other things. So it was, it was quickly overwhelming. And for me personally, for whatever reason, and I, there's no great reason. I just look back and think about it. I couldn't know. I didn't know what was on a Japanese card. I couldn't read it. 
and I wasn't a player of the game, if I had played the game, well, then I guess all the players kind of know, oh, this is that attack. It's just written in a different language, but I didn't play. So mm -hmm. it wasn't a situation where I could say, oh, I know exactly what that says, even though it's in different language. So it didn't resonate with me. For me, I wanted to collect something that I could enjoy and understand. And that just happened to be the, the English cards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense because I've felt that as well, you know, fatigue with just so many things that you want to get and can get. It's a little bit overwhelming. It's almost like you have to spend some time focused on one thing. But then, or at least for me, sometimes I feel FOMO because I, I worry that maybe I'm so focused that I'm not, I might be missing out on other deals for other things that I want. It, so I understand. <laughs> I understand. Um, so and, and as far as the, the World Trophy cards, um, which are beautiful cards, um, what made you kind of get those? Was it because of the fact that the populations uh, for those cards are a little bit more, I don't want to say stable, but are more known? Yeah, um, I, I don't know what, what specifically prompted me to go for those cards. I, I do, you know, I, I happen to have just a couple of old spreadsheets that for some reason have survived since when I started. Mm -hmm. And when I look at those and I look at what I was buying and I was in that 2004 timeframe, I was just very fortunate not to get in in 2008 or nine kind of thing and realize I was missing five years worth of cards. Mm -hmm. I realized I was only missing, hey, 2004, 2005. So I start going to eBay and I start, you know, looking around and, oh, here's a finalist card. And I uh, paid something egregiously crazy because I thought that the finalist card was the best card you could buy in any year. Mm -hmm. Wake up two months later and find out, oops, no, there's something called a trophy card that's actually given out to the one, two, and three winners. So I started to pick those up when they came available. Um, I've always said it's been, I've been very fortunate not to, not to um, hunker down too hard on the prices. So if I had to pay two or $300 more for something, I believed in doing it and still do because it was part of filling a collection. It mm -hmm. wasn't for investment in evaluating my purchase. I wanted to have the card so I could have all the 2004, five or six trophies. And as I started to get that stuff, and then the word got out there that I was, you know, one of the bigger collectors and then people would start helping me, um, you know, friends. And, and what happened was having some success and picking up a handful of those early cards, I made some crazy, another crazy decision, very crazy because I'm not this public guy to start going to the world championship tournaments every year starting in 2006. So from 2006 forward, I've been to all of the world's events. Um, I hate it there because I feel so left out. I'm all, I mean, everybody's playing, having a great time, side events, and I can do nothing. I stand there and go, why won't anybody embrace me? Because I look like this old creepy soccer guy. Oh. It's horrible. I, I make me so upset. And then, you know, mm -hmm. people are handing out packs and they're like, you know, the little kids, could I? And then they look at me and they go, we can't give him one because he's a guy and he does not have to start it. Oh. It's terrible. And so, but the one thing I've done is approach the winners and say, mm -hmm. hey, can you help me? And I've had a myriad of the most wonderful. I always feel like I'm remiss. I never mentioned Dan Norton enough, DJ Gigabyte, who has helped me extensively at those events, as well as many other people, too many to mention, who have who've run around rooms saying, you got to talk this guy, you got to talk this guy. He's not going to resell your cards. It's mm -hmm. going to be a good home. He'll pay you a good price. And it kind of it grew from there. Mm -hmm. So I just got lucky. And then I started to have 
success in this completionist kind of mentality and it's now flavored out to where it is now so yeah yeah th- that's amazing and the one thing i do love about the pokemon community is that we are really inclusive compared to other hobby sectors i guess you know um you know certain circles like in magic the gathering they're a little bit um they keep everything kind of close to the chest i've noticed but pokemon um from what i've seen you know in my one and a half maybe going on two years of being in social media it's been it's been awesome just because you can reach out to people and get help with finding cards whether it's trades or selling or things like that it it is a really nice community i've met a lot of people along the way and honestly like i think that's the best way to approach it because in our normal lives shoot we can't like there aren't people that we can really talk to at least i don't have and i know i know a lot of other people can relate to me i don't know uh, your situation but there aren't that many people that you can actually have you know meaningful and insightful conversations about pokemon because they usually instantly judge you um (laughs) so it can be kind of tough but you know there's an outlet for us. Um, so I think, I think that's really awesome that you've been able to, to, you know, connect with people over the years and, and get the help that you, you might need for, uh, completing your collection, which I'm right there with you. I'm an introvert. I'm a homebody going to like, uh, you know, world championship events, like what you've been going to for these past years. It just scares me thinking about it because I, I just, I'm right there with you. It's, yeah. it can be, it can be really, uh, you know, anxiety feeling when you're around people that you don't know so I always need to have like an extroverted person with me that can like start conversations I don't know if that's what you do too but that's kind of always been my strategy (laughs) yeah no I think that's critically important because I also judge myself all the time right I'm standing out there trying to acquire someone's cards I know I'm willing to give a good deal I know it's going to a great home and I know they think I'm this creep who's trying to make a steal from them right so I'm always self-judging and anytime someone like Dan or whatever can be there saying, hey, this guy, we've been doing this for years. And, and you know, the people at Pokemon have been so amazing. I don't talk about them. They don't talk about me, right? It's don't ask, don't tell. But mm-hmm. they've been kind enough to know that what my intentions have been at these events for 14 or 15 years have been above board and in the best way that I could make them. And they've let me do my thing. And mm-hmm. so I've just been so appreciative of the the administrative part of it too, that they're not, oh, get him out of here. Someone made a complaint mm-hmm. or something. Because that's not my intent to disturb anybody. I never want to rock the boat. I just want to kind of flow aimlessly, peacefully along. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're there to hang out, meet people, see cards. Um, So then I'm really curious um, with your collection, and your collection is so extensive. um, Can you name it? What is your favorite most beloved card and it doesn't have to be your most valuable like just your most cherished piece of your collection yeah people always ask me these questions and i am the absolute worst i'm the worst (laughs) interview i'm the worst answer it's horrible um i don't i'm i'm not sure i have a great answer um you know i what always comes to mind is the one card that i'm known for which is the pre-release raichu so, so that is, you know, such a nostalgic part of the hobby um, to have been able to acquire that card where it's not, its authenticity is not questioned. I think that would, ha- that would have to be t- for sure one of the top ones. Mm-hmm. I think my 2004 trophy number one, um, because it's the very first trophy card that ever was issued or came out. And, and they all, I think all, at that year, everything went to Japanese winners. So to have one back from Japan to have been able to acquire that over the years has been pretty, pretty crazy. 
Uh, and then, um, and then there would be some that are more, I don't want to say like their, their gifts or anything, but they've come in maybe some deals I've done some from some bigger, uh, not collectors, but dealers where they just kind of hold a special place because I sort of acquired it for my son um, or, you know, that kind of thing, just to have something to kind of show one day and say, Hey, this was always something I just put away for you as something fun to have down the road. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not so much into the very singularity of the, of the cards. It's more into really the whole that, uh, that is more special to me, I would say. And as sad as that is, I wish that weren't the case, but that's what it is. So. I, I mean, I can relate to that. Uh, Cause I think uh, one of like the, one of my most nostalgic cards is just a PSA eight unlimited Mewtwo and the reason why it's so beloved to me is because I found it at a secondhand shop for seven dollars it was a raw card it was the first card that I sent in to get graded and it ended up coming out a lot better than I thought it was because all scratched up in the hollow so I can understand there, there's sentimental value because it, it it corresponds to an experience um so so I can understand I can understand it completely um you know in talking about the trophy cards because because I <laughs> So I find them to be really interesting just because of, you know, the whole circumstance of why they exist, right? New trophy cards, because they're given to winners who play in tournaments. And I think that's really fun and awesome. And and it kind of reminds me too of cards like the Illustrator Pikachu cards, because those were, you know, given out, there was only uh, 30, I cannot remember. Um, But, you know, there were only so many given out, um, you know, for that particular circumstance back then. Do you, do you think, uh, I'm just curious, do you think um, the trophy cards or even like the original 2004 trophy card that you mentioned, um, could that card be potentially in the future as valuable or as sought after as the illustrator Pikachu? So this is one of the biggest debates that you'll, you'll encounter as far as when it comes to discussions. And I've spent 15 years with people telling me in the hobby that my cards were worth nothing. And they would never that's, be worth anything. That's rude. <laughs> right. and, and it's because the people that were the most prolific on social media, whose names I don't mention anymore, I don't never mention them, but the people that have you pay their Patreon fees and whatever they're doing. Um, and it's sad because I'm not opinionated, but this one gets me. So you hit my hot button. Um, <laughs> so they, they basically would argue that the only thing would, that was valuable was what they were selling. Okay. Mm, and that that has incentive behind it. Exactly. And so I've never been that person. I've looked at the numbers, I follow the trends, and I try to tell it like it is right or wrong. I don't say, oh, you should buy these things for me because I own them. No, mm-hmm. you should buy them if it's a good investment. You shouldn't. It has nothing to do with whether or not I own it or not. So the reality is, let's look at it. I've read, I am not the person to ask this of, so you'd have to ask other people. I've read, they've established that there's like 39 illustrators, give or take, something like mm-hmm. that. All right, well, there is three, there are three 2004 number one trophy cards in the world, and that's it. And there are three 2004 number two trophy cards and three 2004 number three. There are three 2005 number one, two, and threes. So you tell me, with the surge in popularity of English cards right now, you know, still to this day, some of my good friends who shall remain nameless because we have our little internal debates, but oh, your Pika, your pre-release Raichu card, which is the only one authenticated currently. There may be others, but there is one authenticated. It's worth $10,000. The same thing it was worth 20 years, you know, 15 years ago. 
in the new Pokemon magazine that's out for the 25th anniversary at Safeway Store Walmart, it says that card is one of the value, most valuable cards. And of course, that's way out of date. That's a magazine. But it's right. brand new. It says $10,000, all right? I've had offers for the cards of $250,000 now. So, you know, do I think the stuff will be valuable? Yes. Do I think it'll be as valuable in time? What people would say is, what those other people would say to justify their position is, well, the illustrator's much more of a, of a legend. It's because it's Japanese and this whole hobby originated in the Japanese area, et cetera. So if you buy that argument, which is a fair argument, I mean, if you say, look, the real cards that everybody knows and remembers are Japanese, then you would buy that and say, so they'll never be that way because it will never carry the demand. But as you look now and you watch people paying some, some 2006 number two trophy card just sold at auction for $110,000, one card. Yeah. Uh, so if you looked at the... You know, we looked at the Ishihara or whatever that sold for $100,000. Of course, it was a PSA 10. But if you're starting to see some of these values creep up more and more and more, um, it's because the English collectors are in this thing now to own stuff they can't find and fill out collections. And they're willing to go after some of these cards in whatever format they can find them. So, so long-winded answer, I don't have any idea. Am I optimistic? Absolutely. I, the numbers don't lie. When there's three of a card that's ever been, you know, in existence, when you look at that VS Tropical Mega Battle set that I did a video on not too, you know, pretty recently, and it, it is the most rare English version set ever put out there. Um, there's only probably a handful that even exist in some form right now. I might know of four or five. There, those cards, that set's selling for a lot of money. People don't realize a lot of my stuff is confidential, but that set goes for a 30-card set goes for a lot of money in English card set. Wow. Wow. And so I had a, a conversation uh, with Jerry Padauer earlier this year, and we had talked about like the, the niche cards. These, these niche sets were cards that um, the market probably, and I don't want to oversimplify because I'm sure there's nuance, but, but, you know, it seems like there's parts of the markets where people are just certainly not educated enough on, right? This particular tropical set, I don't know much about. The world trophy cards, I don't know much about. But I feel like with more education of the market, I feel like certain cards like those have a real shot, you know, because like what you said, rarity is such, I mean, it is really pretty damn rare. And if they're really lovely cards, and I'm sure they are, I mean, people just fall in love for the art on those. I mean, like the Southern Island set, that's probably my favorite set of all time. Because, um, you know, it, it has, I just love the art. It's so cute. It's, you know, there's cameos of other Pokemon just hanging out in the cards. Like, I, I just love it. I didn't even grow up with those cards. I, I recently came across them about six or eight months ago, and I started buying a few full sets um, in English and in Japanese. So, I mean, I, I, I can agree with you. I feel like those cards have a really good shot because I feel a lot of it, you know, part of demand comes from even knowing that it's there. <laughs> right. So, yeah, many people have not, and they're shocked to find that there's these other cards because they're just not available. You don't see them. And I'm shocked. I mean, I'm shocked lately. There was a, I think I'm going to get it wrong, but it's the, uh, it's like the stadium challenge or something that was just at auction. I always get these two. There was a, one was the, there's a couple of bilingual cars that are very famous, the executor, and then one's a lucky stadium. And those, um, the lucky stadium is very rare. And it just sold for maybe 30 or some thousand. And then 
there's a um a the i think it's a deoxys stadium challenge or whatever that might have just sold for i'm gonna get it wrong but maybe it was 40 or fifty thousand or something crazy and wow I, yeah i thought that these cards would still be four or five thousand dollar cards again i don't monitor the values because i'm not selling mine but to see what's happened just in the last couple of years with the demand as people have discovered how rare these are, especially in light of this now surging demand. And I don't know, uh, Mr. I don't know how to say his name, but um, let's, let's say Padawar or whatever. Um, but I, but I, uh, he's done business with me before. I just don't know him personally. Um, and guy and gentlemen like that, who I knew are sort of new to the hobby, but have disposable income and are interested in buying what they want to buy. They, they can be very selective collectors and, and, I think that's a huge part of this hobby. There's a lot of folks that have disposable income, considerable income, who are buying for themselves, who will buy for their children, especially once they fill out the more obtainable cards and sets and mm-hmm. then on to the things that are harder to get because they just, because they can afford to own them. There's folks in this country that have, and in the world, by the way, I saw the people all over the world that have uh, a lot of income and, and want to own what they want to and, and are not willing to spend the money to, to do it. So the hard part mm-hmm. is a lot of stuff doesn't come available. So it's when it does come available, you sort of have to be ready to pounce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that completely makes sense. Uh, there's there's a window <laughs> for for those. And, and you also have to have liquidity too at that time. Um, so and, so and, and, and let me say just one last thing. The pre-release write you, mm-hmm. there's debate. Is it is it really a card? Is it not? You know, is it authentic? Anybody can debate that because that's just how it is. The there's been cards that have sold for a quarter of a million dollars in the last couple of months that are prototype backs and stuff. Yes, that one could argue. So, so I'll I'll call that a parallel, but let's set that aside. The mm-hmm. trophy cards are the trophy cards. They were legally distributed. There's three of each one until you get to the eleven or twelve year when there's four of each one. Um, I'm sorry, there's not four. There's four different places, and there's also six of each one because they started mm. giving the video game as well as um, the trading card game. But still, between three and six of any given card in the population ever, 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 pretty rare when you look at any other card you could try to acquire. I mean, um, you do not have to tell me twice. I am a numbers person. Like those numbers, you cannot fight those numbers. And considering the fact that, you know, even even when we look at, um, you know, just normal sets, you know, you know, non-promo cards, normal vintage sets. I mean, we don't even have a full grasp of of populations because we've got PSA populations that are available. BGS is not available. CG says CGC says they will become available, but we still don't know when that's going to happen. So, you know, just to see the plethora of cards that that PSA is in the process of getting graded and then now how the demand for getting cards graded is pushing to CGC, I mean, we're talking tremendously high populations. Like Anyways, I it, it it just kind of blows like the numbers the numbers don't lie. <laughs> as long as you've read the numbers correctly and you have the right context, which you know part of what you've you've said you know as well too when we were talking previously, you know, uh, people providing information with incentive. I've kind of been on a kick lately where data that is persuasive by nature, um, you know, is shown throughout the hobby with incentive, um, which I have real problems with because. Um, you know, uh, 
data stewards, like true good data stewards are going to be completely transparent and, and are going to show you, you know, how they got the data, how the math was done to calculate the numbers. Like I, I, I'm just, I'm just very skeptical. And I try to educate people from what I know from my day job as being involved in data. Um, that's something that always really scares me. I mean, not even just Pokemon, you know, in all the other hobbies too, where there is a ton of movie, uh, money floating around like NBA cards. I mean, that is the wild, wild west. I know nothing, but I see huge numbers and not going to lie, they scare me a little bit, but um, that's only because I'm ignorant of that sector. So, um, but um, as far as I guess as far as your collection goes, because because I've read before um, in in Instagram posts and I have heard other times too, you are not necessarily a slab collector. You you don't necessarily feel the need to um, to have slabs. Like if you have a rock hard, you don't feel the need to necessarily send that out. Um, how do you go about? Um, I mean, have you sent out cards to PSA? If so, like what, what kind of um, mindset do you approach with that? Do you just keep all of your raw cards the way they are and just have them very well kept and put away and safe? Yeah, I'm not. Um, so again, I know this is another huge <laughs> debatable point. Uh, <laughs> and, and I have the conversation with a lot of people, but I truly do practice what I preach. I'm I, I, you know, take accountability only for myself and that's what I need to do. And I like to be completely transparent with people. And those are two of my major life mantras that I go by. So I think if you want a great card, it's wonderful. Congratulations. You should do it exactly. It's an opportunity. There's a service to do that. Great. Um, I personally don't grade and I've never graded a single card. Uh, the, I have upgraded my cards, meaning I might have had three sets that I used to build a single set to try to build the best condition card. Mm -hmm. I do not want anything in my collection that I wouldn't rate at least an eight if I were grading. I've been in the business of looking at cards and evaluating condition of one kind of another for uh, 40 plus years, at least 40 years now. So I know what an eight, nine, 10, eight and a half, seven and a half, I know it better than the people that are sitting at any grading agency just by experience. And I can do it in a heartbeat as quickly as anyone. Um, so I, I don't, uh, no, I, I, I don't want to spend the money. Number one, I'm, I've got, I, I can't, first of all, monetarily, I'd rather use all that money to acquire more cards. That's number mm -hmm. one. Number two, the storage of that amount of cards in slabs and deciding, well, I'm just going to slab the hollows. I'm just, I just, it doesn't make sense for me. I want to open up a binder and, and pop through some pages and enjoy what I see page by page et cetera, et cetera. I, I like to be able to open and look at without having to go to boxes and find storage labs or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always been worried about, uh, I, because I am a, my sixth grade teacher, I joked, I think with uh, Pokey Gal said, you know, I was a perfectionist. Uh, I, I worry that what's going to come back to me, I know it's an eight and it's coming back as a seven. Because mm -hmm. I know exactly what an eight is. I, you know, like I said, I can look at eBay listings or any listings and look into the cards and say that should not have been graded the way it was. Clearly not an eight. Clearly right. not. So the subjectivity that's involved in it, it would frustrate the bejesus out of me. And I don't <laughs> want to have to deal with that. And last but not least is um, I don't want to have anything lost in the process. So losing a very valuable card. And then somebody said to me the other day, what a racket. One of the folks I dealt with just said, what a racket when you have to pay more for cards because they say they're worth more 
And now you're getting charged more and more and more and more. <laughs> and it's all very true. So, so let me throw something your way since you were kind enough to finally get me on your geeked out collecting podcast. I mean, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Probably Uncle Bay will be the one to get on six months after everybody else. And that's fine. I can take it. I, I have a sense of humor, even though I do cry a lot at night. My therapist. <laughs> so I, I have a theory for you and your viewers and you can, mm-hmm pass it out and see what you think. And I'll do a video at some point on it myself. Mm -hmm. I actually think that high level condition cards, not graded, will be worth more than graded cards, possibly at some point in time. Okay. Now I'll say anything tens, maybe not so much, maybe, but Mm -hmm. anything below 10 for sure. And here's the counter argument to my point. Okay, here's what people have said to me, the couple that I've talked to about it. They've said, well, David, if you think you're going to get more money for your cards because you're selling them and they're not graded, um, then we'll just buy a nine or 10 and we'll break the slab open and buy it. We'll just do it that way. We'll break open the slabs. And I said, well, isn't that interesting? Because I would never touch a slab. I'd be so afraid of damaging the cards. Mm-hmm, so if absolutely. People start a, if people want to start a service, here's the best idea I can give anybody out there. Go start a service for breaking open slabs where you guarantee people through your proper tools that you'll give them back their nines and tens as nines and tens truly. Mm-hmm. Because I'm telling you right now on my website, I am selling cards for more. My if I'm selling gold stars that are mint or near mint to mint, I'm getting more than PSA nine and 10 prices. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know why, it's because when you go on eBay and you look at a PSA nine such and such card, you're going to find three of them or four of them or 10 of them. And you're going to find no true near mint to mints in raw condition. You'll find zero. Now on eBay, and I'll jokingly smile and smirk, as you know, people joke and say, everybody has a near mint to mint card on eBay. So you have to finagle through all the junk. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kids and stuff that are selling. But if you talk about a truly graded card, I've got people that want to put it in their binder. They don't want to put it in the slab. And you cannot find those cards right now, which mm-hmm. is why I don't have any trouble selling them. Um, uh, not my collection, by the way. Some people don't realize I have my own website where I sell my extras because I'm trying to sell them before I die because I have too many cards and I'm old. (laughs) Well, so, you know, I love that you brought up this theory because this is a conversation that I've been having a lot, actually. Well, a similar conversation that I've been having a lot with um, some of my other hobby buddies. And I'm so glad some of them are on this stream because I'm going to bring it up. So we've had the debate. Do you, when you could grade with PSA, which one do you go with? PSA, BGS, CGC, right? Because, you know, PSA had increased their prices. CGC has been increasing their prices. BGS has been just expensive. (laughs) Um, So, you know, what do you go with? Because some people feel a lot of, you know, very respectable collectors feel that, you know, you should stick with PSA because what we've seen historically is PSA is going to hold the premium so you can get the better price for those cards. Um, but you know, right now PSA is not a choice, right? So if some people want to send those cards in, they, they have to wait for whenever they reopen. I know they say they're going to open in July, but really a a lot of people, including myself, just really doubt that. Um, but we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously we want positiveness. So if they are able to, then fantastic. Um, but this is the thought. The thought is, is that it doesn't matter where you go. Just pick the cheaper one 
the cheapest one so that you put in less into the card, like you're, you're spending less. The reason why is because at the end of the day, regardless of the brand, you should be buying the card, period. You should be looking at the card just because it's a great, it's a nine. It could be a week nine and that card probably should have been an eight, maybe even a seven. You don't know, but, but, but you have to look, you have to look at the card and you have to buy the card itself and not the grade. And that's kind of what you're telling me here too, right? It's really hard to sift. Well, it takes a really long time to sift through raws. I've been looking for Sabrina's gaze, like the banned Japanese version of the card to find like a really nice, good minty version. And it has been very difficult. I've, I've not been able to find one yet. And, um, you know, it's obviously not surprising because a lot of those cards, the really good ones, I just feel like minty cards are just absorbed up into collections. People who know what they want, they know how to look at cards, they know how to sift through them. You know, when they see an opportunity, they're going to pounce. So again, that, that, that small window of time to get something. But I mean, again, I wouldn't be surprised also if your theory does come to fruition just because if you are truly buying the card and, you know, more collectors are coming into the hobby and more collectors are becoming more educated and getting more experience and, you know, upping their skill. Cause, cause being a collector, you have a number of different skills that you're learning at the same time and trying to juggle and trying to get better at. So, I mean, at the end of the day, no, you know, you're not buying a PSA 10 Charizard, you know, first edition Charizard because it's raw and it's in a binder. But if it could grade that, I mean, you're still getting the same card, right? Maybe your card is even better, you know, looks even better than an actual PSA 10 because it was a week 10 and it probably should be a nine or a 9.5, you know? I don't know. I think, I like your theory. I like it. Yeah, I, I think that um, there, there's an, because everything intersects, it makes this whole kind of discussion more complex by nature. Um, you know, I think that right now you talked about the data. The data doesn't lie. So why would people grade with CGC if or BGS when PSA is it really brings such higher prices? Right across the board, you're getting a higher price. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't that doesn't look at why people grade in the first place, right? Are you grading because you think it's going to make it a better investment? Are you grading because you're trying to ask, maybe you're not a great condition evaluator and you want to know something about your cards and that they're a certain level. There's so many reasons why people do it. But to me, it is very expensive. And, and I'm not sure why people do it um, in the sense of, other than the fact that they, there are people, I can totally understand the people that are anal about the number. That makes complete sense to me. Mm -hmm. I've got to have nines and tens. That's part of the collection is seeing a nine or 10 on the label. That makes complete sense. But if, if you're trying to do it for, for other reasons, like, okay, for uh, resale value, I would rather see people establish your reputation. Establish yourself as a person that grades fairly. People mm -hmm. get the cards from me and they're like, wow, you're a tough grader. And I go, you're darn right I am because I want people happy when it hits their hands. Mm -hmm. I don't want frustrated. So if you're that person and you develop a reputation, people will buy anything from you. If you don't, if you're not doing it right, or, or you know, I bought uh, someone just, I did a trade. I try to help people out with trades. It wasn't the best trade for me, and that's okay. I don't care. Um, but I bought, I got the only PSA 10, I only get PSA 9s or 10s. And mm -hmm. when I only get PSA 9s or 10s in trade, it's, I put them on the website and, um, to, and I'll give somebody else something for them and I put them up for sale. I haven't sold, I have shadowless PSA 9s and 10s on my website. I haven't sold a single one, not one. So, um, 
And I priced, I went to eBay, priced all of my cards lower than whatever eBay's lowest price was, and there's not sales tax. So uh -huh. what I'm saying is that the, 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 there's a saturation factor, and maybe it takes over time, it sort of withers out. But all I have to do is just sit there and look at the, my feeling on this, and I know nothing about it. BGS is just not for Pokemon. That's my feeling, okay? Mm -hmm. Not a Pokemon grading service, so I think that sort of knocks it out. CGC is the new kid in town. They do not have the reputation. They do not have a PSA has, despite the fact that their grading might be as good, if not better than PSA in certain instances. And so the money people spend, I don't understand it. I don't, why wouldn't you go, if you're doing it for investment at all, go buy more cards, go get two, spend two, three, $4,000 and go buy $2,000 of the brand new cards coming out. And three years from now, they'll, worth be double, they'll be worth double. And you'll be way happier than if you're grading all your cards now to do it for investment. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. if that's you're it for your collection differently mm -hmm. different deal yeah that that definitely makes sense and i think uh you know pretty much what you've been saying is that the the reasoning and the motivation matters why you're buying matters and you need to take those things in consideration because i know Back when I first started collecting, I was reading some baseball articles talking about should you get your cards graded, should you not get your cards graded. Because at first, when you're a new collector, you think, oh, man, if I get my cards graded, they're going to be worth so much more. And the funny thing, one you know point in that article that really struck with me is you also have to have a valuable card um, for for that grade to to add additional sale value for you in the future like you also have to actually have a valuable card you can't just you know necessarily um you know a card completely overprinted you know no one's going to really care if it's a psa 8 or psa 9 or psa 8. and you know you're, you're not going to command as much value as compared to you know an actual sought out card but but something that i've also thought about too and at least for my collection um i mean having slabs is such a safe way to keep your collection long-term. So, I mean, whatever reason, I, I, I'm with you, like whatever, as long as you're deliberate with your reasons and they make sense from for you, you know, I think I say go with it. And if you're not too sure, but you plan on keeping the cards long-term, I mean, I also don't mind grading them just to keep them safe. Yeah, um, it makes total sense. And, I, and I, I need to comment on what you said. I think it's really super important. The value of the card makes a huge difference. So, so look, we can pick out the Charizard first edition, the difference between a 10 and an eight or something like that in the value. So you're going to have the exceptions to some of this, where the fact that it's the Charizard 10 and it carries so much prominence in the hobby, that can make a huge difference. I'm talking more across the board. Mm -hmm. This concept of how do you grade sets? How do you grade gold stars? How do you grade every EX hollow? How do you grade every regular hollow? How do you grade... 110 or 165 reverse hollows in a set you know for me i mean i can certainly look at them and see if they're scratched or not scratched and right away you start to move to the eight and nine area and you move from there so so i do think you you make a very valid point that the value of the card in general does need to be taken into consideration for sure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely so i you know I guess you've kind of already answered the question because one of the things that you've said is, you know, the cards that you have um, on your website, which I'm really curious to know your thoughts on why your shadowless cards haven't moved um, because I have thoughts on shadowless cards. So I'm curious if our theories kind of intersect, but um, one of the things that I've struggled with personally as a collector or, or collector investor, you know, someone involved in Pokemon, I cannot juggle between being a buyer and a seller. 
Because, like, I buy stuff and I want to keep it. <laughs> it has been so hard and it's been so tough. I've only recently started to have more cards available where I'm willing to, you know, maybe trade them. At this point, I'm kind of looking at it from a trading perspective because you can, you it's, it's a really great way to build relationships with people. But also, you don't have to put money down on the table. You don't have to worry about the taxes or nothing on their end or my end. And, you know, we're just getting cards that we want. Um, so I've been... Uh, like six months ago, I had bought um, like several bulk um, lots, you know, so I have you know, a whole bunch of bulk where where now I'm able to have some like leverage to sort of start doing some trades. But, um, you know, definitely struggled with balancing because I just want to keep the things that I buy. But but for you, it seems like you've also done something similar where you're selling your bulk or not your bulk, but your duplicates. Um, was it always hard to kind of balance between being a buyer and a seller? I think it's probably it may be the very hardest thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always said, because I've ran companies that have been involved in sports memorabilia and cards for years. And then, and then the Pokemon area and stuff that, that if you try to do both, you know, it's like a focus issue. You'll never be able to do one as well as you would do if you were focused just on one. So um, yeah, that's, that's always been very difficult. I find when I'm working on selling, I'm not working on buying for the collection. And that always concerns me. Mm -hmm. It's relevant and continuing and so it, it seems like I'm always the dog chasing the, the tail, you know, or the cat, whatever they say, um, over and over again to find whichever direction I'm going. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm in this funny place now where I think that the hobby has this surge in the last couple of years. I do think it makes some sense to monetize some of the cards. You know, at the end of the day, they're still cardboard. And I, and I think that people, it's no different than people say, well, you don't want to sell Amazon stock because it's going to go, you know, from 3000 to 5000. Well, you know what, someone's going to sell it at 3000. Someone's going to buy it at 3000. Someone's going to let it go to 5000. They're going to make money too. So, so, and by the way, that's not as my advice as a financial advisor. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it is with the, the cards. You know, uh, there's going to be some boxes I sell at 5000 that are going to go to 15 or 20,000 and that's okay. You mm -hmm. know what, I bought them at 500. So you have to be able to monetize and and put some capital back in the the, the bank every once in a while mm -hmm. uh, additional capital for additional opportunities in whatever way they might come and you can't be afraid to turn over inventory the most successful businesses they do sell and they do turn over inventory and then they use those monies to to buy other things in the future because there's always the next thing coming if you're patient enough and and you're diligent enough and looking for that